0: I Sister
1: White. We will not fear.
0: The kingdom is alive.
1: The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. All right, welcome to Adventist Voices, and happy new year to all of you. I thought one of the best ways to kick off the new year would be to chat with a person that I've known for a while um, and someone that I've respected because of his work in the Adventist Church and his interest in media in general, and that is Dan Weber. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here, Alex. Uh, as Many listeners know Dan Weber is the communication director for the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists, which means that he oversees the Sunscreen Film Festival, uh, is the executive director of the Society of Adventist Communicators, and um, is also on the executive board that is responsible for landing part or the Adventist journey in our mailboxes. So, um, thanks for doing all of that.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a busy job, but I enjoy it. And uh, it's a fun job. Believe me, there's never a dull moment.
1: (laughs) I'm sure. Uh, lots of travel.
0: Yeah, there, yeah, there is some travel. Um, but, uh, I, I enjoy that, but I also, for me, it's, I get, it's working with my counterparts throughout the North American division. That's the fun part.
1: Well, um, speaking of travel, I think the, way that i'd like to kick off our conversation is to um begin actually with some travel that you did as a student and then from there we can talk about um yeah. the sort of vision for communication in the north american division and adventism sure. in general but uh take us back to um the story that you shared in spectrum about your time in iceland how did that come about
0: Yeah, I uh, was a student at Andrews studying photography, and I'd done two years of classes, and I kind of hit burnout point. Um, I wasn't really quite sure what I was doing. And, you know, I think every young person goes through that stage in their life. Yeah. And uh, I'd kind of had this come to Jesus talk with God and said, uh, hey, uh, this better happen on campus or I'm not coming back next year. I think I applied for a job in the, as an RA a resident assistant, in the boys dorm and I didn't get it. And I was kind of like, Oh, okay, well that's your sign. You don't want me to come back. So I went home. My mom was living in in Michigan at the time in Cadillac, Michigan. And I got the worst job I ever had in my life. I ended up pumping gas at a gas station, getting paid four bucks an hour. Oh, and the reason they, the reason the only, the only reason they paid me $4 an hour was because I had college education and
1: <laughs> useful <laughs> at the gas station. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I was out of my element
0: cause I had no idea what I was doing. And they're like, here, go put this alternator in this car. And I'm like, I don't know how to put an alternator on a car. <laughs> <laughs> I know what an alternator is, but I don't know how to put it on the car. And they just looked at me like, so what are you, what are you worth? And I said, well, clearly not $4 an hour. Um, So I was doing that and I was staying at my mom's place in her house in Cadillac, Michigan. And she was down at Andrew's working on her master's and she kept calling me. She knew I was in a tough spot, but my mom was really cool. She was low key and stuff. She wasn't going to just get in my face, but she knew I was kind of struggling with what I was going to do. And, you know, my, my fear was I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life is just sit here and pump gas. And she called me up and she said, Hey, I saw something in the, in the dorm, uh, about a sign about someone going to Iceland. I need a Dean at the school in Iceland. You ought to apply. And I'm like, Oh yeah, come on, mom. Really? I'm not interested. And she kept pushing me. She kept pushing me. So finally to get her off my back, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll call the chaplain's office. We'll have a conversation about it. So I called and they said, Hey, can you come down on Monday for an interview? Uh, Yeah, sure. Whatever. And I figured out here's a chance to at least see my mom. So I took the day off work and drove down and did this interview and to go as a student missionary, you're required to take a class the year before you go to help train you what it's like culturally, you know, to get adapted and you're supposed to study up on the country where you're going and all this other stuff. I hadn't done any of that stuff. I wasn't qualified to go.
1: Yeah. And
0: so I go down and they're talking to me and stuff. And then they said, um, well, to be honest, you're not qualified. And I'm like, yeah, I know I'm not qualified. And they go, but to be honest, we're really desperate to have someone go. So you're going,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? And they said, uh, yes, you better get your passport. You got to be there in six weeks. Whoa. And I'm like, I don't have a passport. I've been on a plane once in my life. And that's when I was two years old. And here I am 20 years old and I'd not been on a plane. And they're like, well, you need to get a passport and you need to fundraise $700 for a ticket. And I'm going, oh, Wow. But it worked out. I got my passport two days before I I left. And uh, I've got an uncle in California who was a doctor who said, hey, um, I'll pay for your flight. Nice. And because my my mom's family had had a history of mission service in the church. And he, he thought this was a really cool thing. And he's like, I'll pay for your ticket. And so next thing I knew. I, I'm in, I drive to Chicago cause I was living in Michigan. Like I said, and I drive to Chicago and Iceland there at that time was flying from Chicago to, to Reykjavik and I get on this plane and there was another student from Andrews who was going, um, actually teaches in the history department there now. And, um, but I didn't really know her. I know she was a, I think she was a music student at the time. And I'm like, we're going to end up on the same plane. And, I remember falling asleep and I had a window seat and I woke up in the middle of the night and I looked down and I think we were over Greenland and all I saw was ice. <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? I'm going to be stuck in ice. And <laughs> I was looking down below going, okay, that's where I'm going to live for the next year. And you know what? it turned out to be an amazing experience it turned out iceland isn't ice yeah <laughs> the name is the name is different than what it really is and i had an amazing experience and i ended up staying 2 years and the second year i ended up meeting my wife she'd come from atlantic union college and it changed who i was it gave me the perspective and the focus i needed in my life yeah um, it caused me to it it forced me to grow up because I, I went from not knowing what I was going to do with my life. Next thing you know, I'm in a, a boy's dorm where I'm living in the dorm with these kids who are 14 to 16 years of age. So they're not much younger than me. Mm-hmm. And I'm their parent because this is a boarding school. And suddenly I've got responsibility. 30, 30 kids. Yeah, I've got a, I'm responsible for these kids' lives. And it was a great experience. Um, It shaped me for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah. You know, I, um, I spent a year in college uh, in Bangladesh as a volunteer for ADRA. And, uh, and um, I have been a proponent for a kind of year out of college uh, service for um, my students and, and friends. I think it, it really is one of the great advantages of Adventist education that you yep. can kind of slip into these, you know, international yep. experiences very easily. And um, if someone's willing to just take that leap, it can really um, be a, a kind of a, a adrenaline rush of uh, maturation. And yep. uh, you learn that the world is much bigger than um, an Adventist campus Feels and um, it really, I think, helps folks um, understand the kind of wider world of Adventism than just kind of North American Adventism.
0: Yeah, it gives you a worldview that's that uh, will impact you for the rest of your life, and that's just awesome. Um, so, if f- I get I get a lot of resumes across my desk. And if I've got a resume and that person has a year of service overseas or doing some sort of, it doesn't even have to be overseas. It could be anywhere in North America. If you've taken a year out of your life to serve others, I know that that will have had an, a positive impact on you. And that person's resume goes up in my mind. Yeah. In other words, that that to me is something that you you can't buy that. Mm-hmm. That's not... Th- that experience right there in my mind makes you a valuable person. Yeah. And, uh, I, 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 you look at what the Mormon church does and they've got, they send these guys out for, I think they do two, two years at a yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wish we had more of our kids doing this. What, what I find funny is that we talk about, Oh, we're going to go on a mission trip or oh, we're you going, Oh, we're going someplace for a week. That's not a mission trip. Yeah. That's, Yes, you're doing something missional, you're helping build a church or a school, and and those are short, good experiences, but a mission trip is going and immersing yourself in the culture and giving up everything that you know and every level that you have so that you understand and appreciate someone where they're at. Um, if we had more of that in this world, we'd be a much better place. I think that you look at the problems we have, you know, the rise in racism and the and, and l- l- the barely any level of tolerance for someone who's not us.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, I think a lot of that has come because we are so self-focused now as a society where it's all about me. And, 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 and I'll, I'll even say that I think some, some extent social media has been great because it's open to worlds, but I think in some ways it's closed them off because people don't talk to each other anymore. You know, you see kids sitting next to each other, texting each other back and forth, but they can just turn and talk. Um,
1: adults too.
0: <laughs> adults. But yeah. But I think the fact that when you, when you sit and you have to engage with someone, yeah. um, we talk about talking to each other. I think the first thing we need to do is listen. Yeah, sure. Hear someone else's story, understand who they are, where they come from and what's their cultural context, or even what's their personal context in their life. Uh, I was at, I worked at the general conference for 10 years and for eight of those years, my job was to go around the world and collect stories. And that was the best job in the world because all I did was sit and just listen. And I got to experience amazing cultures. I went to 120 countries and produced over 400 stories that you know, were really amazing experiences. And these are just average people. But all I had to do was just sit and listen and document what was going on in their life.
1: That's so great. Now, before you um, kind of went into church work, you spent some time um, with your own business and photography and doing um, producing outside of the church. And I'm just curious um, what that um, experience has given you as you have traveled around the world and and served the church for the last couple of decades. Yeah, I,
0: I had a kid come in my office once when I was at the G.C., who was getting ready to graduate from one of our universities and he was so fired up and he's like, I'm here, here's my resume. I'm ready to work for the church. This is awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm the man, I'm going to do this. I said, great. That's awesome. Do me a favor, go work outside the church for five years and then come back. Yeah. And, and he got upset. He said, no, God's called me to the church. And I said, I'm sure God has, but I, and I, I kind of shared my story. And I said, I spent my first 11 years out of school working outside the church and I think that gave me a perception and understanding of quotes, the real world, and an appreciation for it. I think it also helps you realize um, how to um, understand, you know, we're good at speaking to ourselves. We speak Adventese really good. Yeah. But oftentimes we have a hard time speaking to those that, quotes, aren't us. And I think that experience and time I had outside the church where, for um, almost about six years, I ran my own business. And then the last five years, I worked for a large software company in Sacramento. And that that experience right there was, was really beneficial. It gave me a great foundation for everything moving forward. Um, so that when I came to the church, I was a much better employee because I understood the world really well. Um, but I also understood how... Corporate infrastructure works. So I do corporate communications now for the North American division. I worked in a corporate communication environment, a really high level one. We were a public company, and we had a high high quality standard level for everything we did. And yeah, I was dealing, working with executives on a day-to-day basis and stuff and everything. That right there was a great foundation for everything I do now.
1: Well, um, you mentioned Sacramento there as a place where you were uh-huh. kind of learning um, these helpful tools that you bring um, into your work for the church. And um, I'm curious, uh, when you were in Sacramento, what sort of things did you um, it kind of enjoy about your time in California?
0: Well, um, just living in so Sacramento is a great place to live. I, mean, I know you live you, live in, you live yeah. there. and um, Suffer with my wife and I like a, it. Suffer yeah. through King's <laughs> fandom. Yeah. <laughs> and that was part of the thing too. Um, my wife and I moved there in 91, right out of school. Uh-huh. And at that time, Sacramento was not near as big as it is now. And it hadn't expanded. It was a little, you know, all that sprawl that took place and stuff. Yeah, But what we loved about Sacramento was you were two hours from San Francisco. You were two hours from the ocean. You're two hours from Lake Tahoe. Yep. And every weekend we were off going someplace new trying something we didn't have kids for the first 10 years of our marriage and so we actually had this time as a couple to develop this this thing of who we were and find your self-identity um and and that was really important but the one one thing that happened there was we were members of the Carmichael church and we got there and Carmichael had just lost their senior pastor and a bunch of people had had the membership had kind of dwindled down and it was in some ways you could say almost a dead church and there were a bunch of us, all around the same age, early twenties, who'd just gotten out of school, and we all ended up at this church at the same time. And there was nothing there, so we kind of formed our own group on our own on ourselves. And um, after about a year of trying to figure out what we were doing, and we'd get together on the weekends and hang out and stuff. Um, we got Dave Osborne was the pastor. He came in, he'd been uh, vice president at La University. So he came up to be the senior pastor of the church and he met with us and he said, hey, what you guys are doing is great, um, but I'm not going to get in the way because I think if, I try to, if the church tries to control it, it's going to die. So tell you what, I'm going to put $2,000, which at that time was a lot of money. I'm going to put $2,000 in a fund and you guys have access to it and you can use it for whatever you want. Wow. So what we did is we started doing away churches twice a month. So we would have regular church service and and they gave us a room called the fireside room and said, here, this is your room. No one else is going to use it. So we actually had our own Sabbath school and church service in there ourselves. And we didn't have a pastor or anything. We just did all, all we're all all members and there's about five couples and we all took turns leading out. But we set up every weekend. We had uh, someone would host a Friday night Vespers at their house and then someone would host a potluck after church and everybody would bring food. And we just started inviting friends. We'd invite people that weren't going to church anymore. They'd kind of felt, they kind of dropped to the wayside. And we were like, hey, this is no pressure. We're not trying to, we're just trying to connect with you again. Why don't you come and hang out with us? You don't have to come to church, but if you want to come to the Vespers, you want to come to potluck lunch, or you want to go to these away churches we did twice a month. So we'd alternate, you know, one Sabbath we'd say, Hey, we're going to meet at the Adventist, um health headquarters and we're all going to bring on mountain bikes and we're going to go up to the mountains and mountain bike on Sabbath. And then we'll come back in the evening, and kind of hang out. Um, or we're going to go to the ocean for the day. We'd go to angel Island and take the ferry over and, and bike around angel Island and stuff. And it, next thing we knew we had 65 to 70 people in this group every Sabbath, every weekend. That's great. And it just started growing. And for us, the, the friendships I made there, impacted me for the rest of my life but um you talked about the kings i became a kings fan actually when i was in iceland really and this is yeah and this is the reason why so as a kid um my the one connection i had with my dad was sports sure so my dad my dad immigrated to the u.s in in the late 50s into boston so he was a huge boston sports fan i'm still a a lifelong red sox fan i was born there um, and then lived there two years and then my family moved to the Midwest. But I grew up as a kid. My daddy actually had records of Johnny Most, the radio broadcaster for the Boston Celtics, from WBZ, all the famous broadcasts when the Celtics won all their ch- championships with Bill Russell. Wow, that's so cool. you know the Havlicek. I actually had a record I would listen to Havlicek stole the ball and all this other stuff and everything, <laughs> you know. So I was a big Kings fan. But Growing up in the, in the seventies and eighties, watching the Kings, you know, Larry Bird came and the, 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 dynasty kind of started there and everything. But my favorite player was Danny
1: Ainge. Yeah.
0: And I love Danny Ainge because when he played college ball at Brigham Young University, he beat Notre Dame on a last second shot, a big upside in the NCAA tournament where he drove down the lane and flipped this ball up and it went into the buzzer and they, then they upset Notre Dame. And I was, I lived close to Notre Dame because I was living in Niles. I never liked Notre Dame sports. (laughs) So here's this young guy, kind of this punk kid from BYU who throws this ball and hit this great shot. So I was always a fan of his. So when he joined the Celtics, I was like overjoyed. So he was my favorite player. So when I was in Iceland in 1988, he got traded from Boston to
1: Sacramento. Interesting. Yeah. Okay.
0: And so, and I found out about it because there's no internet back then. There's, I didn't have any radio. I could get shortwave radio in the like one or two o'clock in the morning on this radio. I had, I could pick up the news from the, from the BBC, but they wouldn't cover any NBA basketball stuff or anything. So, but the local newspaper would come and, and basketball was popular in Iceland So they would have the sports scores, the box scores and stuff and some headlines. And I learned to read Icelandic a little bit. It's a very tough language. So I would, every day I'd get the sports paper, I'd get the paper and I'd go and i find the sports section. I'd read through all the basketball scores and stuff. And I found out that Ainge had been traded to Sacramento. And that was just devastating for me. How could they do that? So I started following Sacramento. Oh. So for two years, when I was in Iceland, I'm following all of Sacramento. And then it turns out a year in, and, and so when I came back in 90 and 91, I ended up moving to Sacramento and I was a Kings fan yeah. because of that experience and stuff. And we struggled through some tough times, oh, but yeah. I remember, that's, that's being a King's I remember fan. being, yes. I remember sitting in uh, Arco Arena when they do the dra- they did they did the draft thing. Yeah, and you could get in for free to watch the draft on the big screen if you bought a can of food. They would donate to a local charity. So I brought a couple of cans and went in. And I was working for myself at the time, so I had a free day. So I go in and I and I'm sitting there, and that's the day they drafted Peja Stojakovic. Wow. And Peja became my favorite player on the Kings then. Yeah, he's great. And. Oh, he was awesome, and uh, I remember he got drafted, and then he didn't play for a couple of years because he was still he was only like fifteen or sixteen years old when he got drafted. He was playing in Europe, and everyone was mad and, and stuff. And he ended up being a great player. But those Kings teams of the late '90s and early 2000s were amazing to watch. Yeah, that yeah. was uh, you know Chris Webber and uh, Bobby Jackson, Asia and Velotti, and Vlade, Bobby Jackson and Mike up, Baby, Doug and you Christie. know even the. Doug Christie and even the, even the early team where they got started, where they got Vladi and they got Weber and then they drafted Jason Williams. Yeah. And Jason Williams and Chris Weber watching the two of those play was amazing. They couldn't play defense to save the <laughs> yeah. game. They were, they were fun to watch on the court. Great so, passing. Yeah. It's, yeah. You can tell them I'm basketball junkies. So yeah. 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 But I'm, I'm like, I, I, I wish the Kings, You know, they're having an up and down year. I think Luke Walton will be a good coach for them. They've got some talented players, but uh, I don't get to watch the games as much living out here on the East coast now, but I'm still a a passionate basketball fan.
1: Yeah. You, you know, um, it's, it's, you mentioned that um, Danny shot and um, that, you know, being a Kings fan is hating the Lakers. And um, (laughs) yeah, whenever there's a big moment. Um, and I th- recently, it's been Bogdan Bogdanovich who, uh, has a couple of times pulled out these amazing shots, um, and, and beaten the Lakers at the buzzer. And you, those are like, you know, he can basically <laughs> miss shots for, uh, you know, an entire quarter and he'll be forgiven because he beat the Lakers. <laughs> Yes.
0: <laughs> That's
1: how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, being a Kings fan is a, an up and down experience. And, uh, I always think of it as a great metaphor for thinking about, um, you know, the Christian walk and, and also thinking about Adventism. I, um,
0: <laughs> you mean the great disappointment? <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, a small, a small sect growing, hopefully into something. Yeah. Uh, bigger, bigger world and worldwide. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you've had, I, when I think about what you've been talking about, really interesting kind of tensions You're rooted in North America, but, um, have spent, uh, an incredible amount of time traveling around the world and viewing it through a lens. And, um, also someone who has spent time working outside the church and inside the church, somebody who, um, you know, there's, it's not always that you have an Adventist leader who also cares about sports and can talk about it. (laughs) And I'm just curious. Um, actually,
0: um, there's a guy, if you want to get someone to talk about, Dan Jackson loves sports.
1: Oh really? I didn't know. He's
0: a huge hockey, well he's Canadian. Oh sure. Okay. Huge oiler fan. Okay. Um, he'll come in sometimes and he goes, Hey, did you watch the game last night? <laughs> Whether it's football or whatever? Oh yeah. He's really into sports. Yeah. Big time. That's it great. Kind of surprised me. I was surprised by that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, we need a, maybe a little sports page in the next ad yes. journey. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, how you, um, you know, what, uh, how you live with these tensions. Um, is it something that you think about? Is it sort of just uh, part of what drives you? Um, where does it come from?
0: So I had uh, a good friend I went to college with when I, when I was thinking about whether do I come work for the church I was the contact in 2002 by some at the general conference and said, Hey, do you want to consider applying for a job here? And, my first thought was to, to laugh at them because um, I, I swore I'd never work for the church. Sure. My father-in-law was a pastor and then an administrator and you know, you see the behind the scenes stuff and everything. Yeah. It's frustrating. And I was like, man, I don't know. So I, I called a friend who I'd gone to college with who worked for the church. And um, I said, what do you think? And, and he said, uh, let me give you a piece of advice that he said has always worked for him. And that's that, we tend to think of those who work in the church as saints. And he goes, they're not. He sure. goes, we're all sinners. We all put our pants on the same way every morning. And if you keep that in mind, that the church is just a collective of broken It's a collection of broken people. Mm-hmm. Um, so when someone makes mistakes, it's because we all make mistakes, but we tend to hold the church to a higher standard sometimes just because, oh, it's the church. you know. They've, no, there is no such thing. And that actually helped a lot for me. Um, I didn't go in with this wide eyes open. I've come to the mecca at the general conference now, and everyone here is perfect. I, I walked in saying, you know, it's a job. I also worked in the corporate world where the stress of every October you wondered if your job was safe or not because were they going to cut because everything was about the bottom line. Everything, you're a public company. Everything's about what's the dividend on the return for the investors. Yeah. So they were always looking at cutting and stuff and everything. So that was a very stressful place to work. It's just a different type of stress working for the church. You just tend to look at it differently. Um, but one thing that's really helped is I am actively involved at my local church. I'm an elder by local church. I teach a Sabbath school class. i helped set up, I oversaw the setup of our system where we broadcast our services every week and stuff. And I'll come in and direct, you know, every couple of months to, you know, just keep fresh in that stuff and everything. But I don't, and I want to make sure people don't take this the wrong way. I get my nurture and my spiritual fulfillment from my local church. Yeah. I don't get it from my job. I work with Adventists. In an Adventist environment, it's an Adventist institution, but I don't let what happens here impact my, um, I don't let it impact my spiritual life. Because if you do, I, I, and I've seen young people come in and they're all excited, they're on fire. And sometimes the reality of things hit, hits them and they get frustrated. Yeah. And, um, i I think my background and some advice I was given by some people has helped a lot. I've been here seventeen and a half years now. It's hard to believe that when I say that, but um I took this job thinking I'd do it for five years and move on to something else.
1: <laughs> so I'm still here, like in the Godfather. you think yeah. you're gonna get out and they just pull you back in <laughs>
0: yeah, they just pull you back in, yeah,
1: yeah. But I, you know, and I've had
0: opportunities to leave. Um, I've had other opportunities in the church. My wife and I were asked uh, in, the, uh, in, in around 2008 to go to Russia and be assistant to the president there and set up Hope Channel Russia, and it was a wonderful opportunity. And I and I, I'd been that division many times. I appreciated the leadership there, but we said no because we didn't feel. We'd, I didn't feel that thing that God was saying, here, you must go do this. My church said, we'd like you to go do this. Mm. But um, there's a difference between the church saying, go do this, and actually feeling God calling me to do it. Um, I'll, I'll tell you how I came to North America. I was on a, a shooting assignment in the South Pacific. And uh, one of my good friends who had worked with at the general conference had gone to Australia to be the division communication director there. And so he was with me on part of this trip in the South Pacific. And one Friday night we had, we sat and had dinner and had a very long conversation about our families. We had kids around the same age and stuff and everything. And he was talking about how wonderful it was that he could focus on one area of the world and not have to be worried about traveling all over the place because of his kids. And I found myself, um, I found myself rather envious huh. of that And I actually went to bed that night and and I had a a, a conversation with God. And I said, you know, I know you've put me in this position. Um, So if you want me to do something else, you're going to provide. I'm not going to go hunt for it. You're going to provide it. But it would be nice if I could have something where I could focus, maybe have some more time at home and focus on my family a little bit, stuff and everything. And I went to bed. And five hours later, I'm woken up. My phone is buzzing, just blowing up. And I look at it and it's like five in the morning and I look at it and there's a bunch of messages from the guy who was the communication director in it, in the NAD at the time. And he's texted me going, why aren't you replying to my emails? And I texted back and I said, I'm in the South Pacific. What's up? He goes, check your email. And then there was an email saying, would you consider coming to work for the North American division? Oh, And I, emailed my wife and said, Hey, this just happened. And she said, well, I guess we know where you're going to work next, don't we?
1: Huh. So you've been there and, for almost two decades and I'm just, yeah. um, I'm just curious um, what kind of gets you out of bed. What excites you about um, communicating um, to and about North American Adventism?
0: I, I'd say right now um, there's a lot of really good interesting stories about what our members are doing. And I think sometimes it's hard to gather all those stories together, get them and share them. And that's, that's the big challenge we face right now. So I see that's what that what keeps me going is how can we grow what we're doing here? How can we be more intentional about communicating stories from the field back out to other areas of the field? Um, we, we, tend, we, we tend to, as an organization, we focus on our institutional stories. Yeah, And those are important, but I think it's the stories of other members that I think are most inspiring. I think it's the stories of someone who's doing something very small, what they perceive as small at their local church. That's not, it's a huge thing that they're doing and that can uh, impact someone else's life. And, And that comes out of what I did when I was at the general conference working at Adventist Mission for eight years, where I really got this sense of being out in the field and just collecting all these cool stories. And I'll I'll tell you that if you've got the time, I'll tell you the most interesting story I had was I was flying to China in, uh, 2010, I believe no, 2011 and I was going to fly into Shanghai and I'm sitting on a plane in Baltimore and I had the habit of before they shut the door on the plane, I'd pull out my phone and double check all my emails because my route was Baltimore to San Francisco, San Francisco to China. Um, and I wanted to make sure I was up to date on my emails. And I got an email from one of my colleagues who was in China. And she says, hey, I've just finished. Um, I found the story of this girl who's 18 years old and she's living in a leper colony, working with lepers. Do you want this story? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I want that story. That's an awesome story. Wow. And um, so I shot and she said, well, I'll have the girl stay here in Shanghai so you can get the story. I said, no, because um, I was filming it. I wasn't. So she was doing a print story. I was going to do the film, the video story. I said, no, have her go to where she is. I will find a way of getting myself there to film her in the leper colony, working with, his, with the people there. So I sent a quick email to my contact in China, who's gonna meet me at the airport, and I said, Um, read this email. We need to go shoot this. And then I I turned off my phone because the plane's getting ready to take off. I land six hours later in San Francisco, and I have an email from him, and he said, We'll make it happen, just get here. So we got there and we landed, and I think I went to bed. I got three or four hours sleep with jet lag. and Everything got up and we went and we shot this story and we had to take a train four hours to get there and then drive another two hours. But we got to this place and we got this great story. And I mean, I, it took everything I had because I was so jet lagged and so exhausted, but the adrenaline of getting this thing and stuff. And that was such an amazing experience to see these kids. And there was a, several of them, uh, who had committed, their lives basically are several years of their lives. And we talked about this earlier to go and serve those in need and talk about a group. Um, lepers in China were just stigmatized heavily. They were living in an abandoned factory. Wow. And so what they do is they come together and kind of collective and they live in these little colonies and they just take care of each other, but they're in such dire need. And so these young people would go in and they'd live with them in the colony and help them. And um, they told me the story about how Catholic Relief Services was trying to help, but that the Catholic Relief Services people would only show up to the colony, but wouldn't stay there. They wouldn't spend the night there. They would only come for a day and then leave. Huh. So Catholic Record Services, Catholic Relief Services, I'm sorry, Catholic huh. Relief Services saw what these kids were doing and said, "You're doing this better than we can. Um, you're more willing than we are." We will fund your work. Huh. And so they gave them donations so then they could buy food for the, for the people and, um, and help cover the cost of living there and staying with them and stuff and everything. And I, those types of stories, you can't, be, you can't be a human being and not hear that story and not be impacted by that. Yeah. And there are so many stories like that in the church that we need to find and we need to share. And we need to, you know, we talked about how society today is all focused on ourselves. As a church, we need to stop focusing on ourselves and start focusing on others. And start focusing on what's actually what's happening in this world and sharing it with other people. To one, inspire our own members to go out and do the same thing. But also to say, you know what, we're, we're the Adventist Church. We do some really cool things. Um, when Ben Carson ran for president, my office was in charge of, overseeing the media response to that. And that was my awful overwhelmed. We're inundated with media inquiries and stuff and everything. Yeah, And the reporters, because they were mainly political reporters, not religion reporters were shocked when we started throwing facts out about the church. We have the second largest organized healthcare system in the world. We're the second largest parochial education system in the world. And they're like, what? Yeah, really? Yeah. You know? And so, I think we don't do a good enough job of sharing that information with people. Um, we tend to focus on just ourselves or specifically on, you know, everyone talks about evangelism. There's a big thing about digital evangelism, digital evangelism. Digital evangelism is great, but it's not the first step. It's the second step. The first step is building relationships with people. Sure. And I, and I think that's something we need to focus more on as a, as a church. And it's something I need to focus on more as a person.
1: Well, that's great. Um, You know, I think that the focus on um, sort of individuals and listening uh, really sets us up nicely as we're kind of navigating, um, you know, Adventism in 2020. And as a final question, I'd love for you to sort of reflect on what you see coming in the future of Adventism. I'm not asking you to be a prophet, but right. <laughs> as a communicator, what sort of, are there sort of um, some themes, narratives? Um, what what should North American Adventists be uh, looking for in the future?
0: I think, you know, one, one element that came out, there was a Pew Research study that came out around 2012, and I think the facts and that would be more relevant now than they were even then, we're the most ethnically diverse Christian faith in the United States. And I think that diversity can be our strength as an organization. And I think if we focus on that, and if we have a greater appreciation for who each other is, who, who we are, the cultural backgrounds we have, the different experiences that we have, the one thing that binds us is that we're all avanist, but yet we all come from different places and have different experiences. I think if we can build up that strength as a whole as an avanist people in North America, I think that will benefit us because I look at society as a whole and there's a, we talk there's a level of distrust of people sure and I, and I think in some ways we can almost be a beacon of light where we can be, hey, we can all get along. You can, you know, you can understand your Muslim neighbor. You don't have to be scared of them. You don't have to, you know, be angered towards them. In my mind, racism come and hatred come from a point of ignorance because you, you hate something because in some ways we're all, we have a level of insecurity. You're insecure about something. You don't understand something. You're afraid of it. So what do you do? You hate it. Yeah. Um, or you have a level of distrust there. I think if we can come together as a church. And celebrate the diversity of, you know, gender diversity and ethnic diversity and everything else we have, cultural diversity we have as a church. I think that will strengthen us as we relate to society itself. And because we are so diverse, we should be able then to reach out to the diverse elements of society, especially North American, because we are not just one culture. We're we're so many different cultures. We're a collective of cultures together in one country.
1: That's great. I I like this idea of the Adventist church really um, modeling the, the kingdom of God here on earth. Yep. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks so much for taking the time to uh, talk with the Adventist voices audience and uh, wish you the best in the new year.
0: Thanks. And uh, maybe we'll get to go see a Kings game together.
1: Sounds great. Holler at me anytime you're in Sacramento. (laughs) I will. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye.
0: sign who's sister white. We will not fear.
1: The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it.